Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mercy. Well, I want to begin by uh, saying thank you for putting on the event for us this past Friday night. Our family felt honored, we felt loved, we felt overwhelmed uh, with just thankfulness for your generosity towards us. Uh, So many of you went out of your way to speak such kind words to us, and it truly uh, meant so much to us. As I reflected on that evening, I just kept rehearsing these words over and over again. It felt like a family reunion. In many ways, just to, to see uh, even friends who have been with us and have spread out all over the valley, even to a friend we joked uh, because she lives in Japan now, and she's like, I came all the way from Japan to tell you goodbye. And she was one of the first people we ever met in Utah, and so to have her here, she helped us find our first rental home when we moved here. She helped us uh, plan our life when we, we moved here. Uh, with our first dog, she let us put our dog in her backyard because we didn't have a place to, to land. And so for her to come in and just be able to share life with her, uh, but just to share the stories and to be reminded of what God has done in our midst over the past 10 years has truly been a gift. Just to recount old stories. We give the Lord thanks for what he has done. I, I want to I see new faces here this morning, and I would just say whether uh, you've been here a while or you're just stepping in, this is a special place. The Lord's doing uh, something really special in our midst, and He's not done writing the story of Church of the Valley. And, uh, and so we look forward to what he's going to do in the months and years to come. I was recommended uh, a sermon by a friend this week. Uh, it was Pastor Ray Ortland in Emmanuel, Nashville. And uh, it was his final sermon that he delivered to uh, the church there. And he entitled it, How a Pastor Says Goodbye. How a Pastor Says Goodbye. And it was taken from Acts chapter 20, verse 32. And if you know anything uh, about Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, Paul was saying goodbye to a church that he loved, and he gave them these words in verse 32. And now I commend you to God. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And now I commend you to God. He's speaking to a church. He's speaking to the elders of that church. In verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so the church is, is, is God's. He obtained it. He purchased it with his blood. And so when he says, I commend you to God, what he's not saying is, I'm handing you over to God. The church is not ours to hand over to God. It is his. And so what does he mean by commending you over to God? It means this, that he is and he has everything you will ever need. In Christ, in Christ alone, He has, he is, everything you will ever need. 
He is enough to sustain you, to sanctify you, and build you up. I leave Church of the Valley commending you to God, knowing that you are in good hands. And that's comforting. That's comforting. And we could stop there. And, and some of the guys I mentioned this morning, the sermon would be brief. I was like, don't go to the bathroom. You'll miss the response. And we could end there and, and go, we are in good hands. This message would be sufficient to have you know that God will be faithful to continue leading this church is comforting. But what I also find comforting about Acts chapter 20 is who is Paul speaking to? He's speaking to the elders in Ephesus. And I just want to say, Chris, Josh, Wes, I commend you to God. God is, he will be everything you need to sustain this ministry moving forward. Everything you're looking for will be found completely in him. He will give you everything you need to faithfully lead Church of the Valley in the days ahead. And I just want to take a moment and honor you men for your faithfulness, uh, not only to me, but honor you uh, for being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ to watch over the flock that God has given us together that we've been able to care and love for this flock has been a gift. Your friendship, your shouldering of the weight of responsibility of leading Church of the Valley has made these days some of the best of my life. And I'm extremely, extremely grateful for you three men. You have stood by me. You have supported me. You have encouraged me. You've prayed for me. And for that, I'm grateful. Several months ago in May, I was with a group of men in Salem, Oregon. Um, it was our Acts 29 cohort. And they asked the question, if you were to step out of your church, I think it was darker than that. If you were to die and you were to leave your church over to the people who were there, what would happen to it? And I was confident because of the eldership and the faithfulness of the men that are here who are leading with me that this church would continue on. And I'm thankful for you, men. To be an elder uh, at, at COTV, uh, we ask this question. To, as, as men are stepping into this responsibility, we say, if I were to die, would I entrust my, my family over to these men to care for my family, to provide for my family, to love, for my, to love my family, to shepherd my family? And the answer has always been, Absolutely. And so I'm thankful to entrust this church family over to these men. They are fit to oversee uh, not only my family, but the household of God that he's given us here. Uh, so you're in good hands. I would encourage you this morning in the months and weeks to come and the years to come to link arms with these men and allow them to continue to shepherd you with much joy as Hebrews 13, 17 states. I want to teach from uh, John chapter 12 today and, and, uh, and, and really use this passage. And I hope I have the freedom to use this passage. And if not, you can, uh, you can dismiss me after the sermon. How about that? But uh, I, I want to use this passage in a way uh, 
to let you know what I'm praying for you in the days ahead. John chapter 12 is a turning point in John's gospel. And what we see is there's some significant events happening in John chapter 12. We go back all the way to Lazarus. We see to the anointing of oil. Uh, we see the response of the Pharisees and how they respond. And then as we enter in, in John chapter 12, we see uh, these Greeks come and they desire and they're longing to want to see Jesus. And that desire, that longing to see Jesus triggered the hour. All throughout scripture, we've seen uh, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And here we see in John chapter 12, the hour has now come. We see this shift. And Jesus makes an announcement. And Jesus gives an analogy and then he gives some application. And so it wouldn't be a good sermon if I didn't give you an acronym on my last day. And so we see the approach of the Greeks. We see the announcement of Jesus, right? We see this analogy that Jesus uses to describe what is happening. And then he gives some application. And I couldn't help but reflect on this passage and make this my prayer for you. And so I want you to hear me uh, illustrate this passage this morning and what I am committing to pray for you daily. What I am committing to pray for you daily. Jesus looks at this passage. This passage is significant in the, in the fact that John's gospel, for some reason, uh, the story of the Greeks is only included in John's gospel. Only here, no other, no other uh, of the gospel accounts record this seeking of the Greeks. Now, the only thing that I can find is that if we read back in verse 19, it says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And he talks about this idea of the world. And it was really used in hyperbole. It was used in a sense like, look at all the people. Like he's really stirred up a crowd. Jesus has become popular. People are seeking him. People have seen the signs that he's performing, the miracles that he's performing. And he has he is really go gone viral and people are seeking after Jesus. And then just to labor that point a little bit further, John records, here comes some Greeks. And so Jesus came and ultimately like to be in, in the house of Israel to see that he came for the Jews, but yet it's moving beyond the Jews and it's actually Jesus comes to be savior for the world. And this seeking of the Jews actually creates, it becomes a catalyst and, and, a, and it triggers this, this moment where Jesus stands and says, the hour's here, the hour's here. And what I love about this idea of the Greeks is that anyone can get in on this. Anyone. And so I, I want to I take this passage and I, I want to share with you four things I'm praying for you in the days ahead. One, I'm praying that you remain hungry for Jesus. Remain hungry for Jesus. These Greeks come, they, they pursue the disciples, and say, we wish to see Jesus. Now, that's been our heartbeat at Church of the Valley since day one. Part of even moving to Utah in such a difficult place 
in hard soil and trying to cultivate and create something that wasn't here was that it was going to push us beyond ourselves, that we were going to have to be dependent upon Jesus if anything was going to happen. And so the song that we sang, because Wes asked us earlier this week, and he said, hey, would you, uh, are there any songs that would really bless you? And I, I said, if you could play Lord, I Need You, because that's been our heartbeat. When we got here and we unloaded the boxes and we stood there in our house and I told my kids who were four years old, two years old, and almost one year old, like, this is our church. And they're like, our house? This is our church? This is, I'm like, I know, it doesn't look like much. It doesn't look like much. But we're going to seek. We need Jesus to show up. We need him. We have to be dependent upon him. We have to seek him. We have to hunger after him. And if we will be hungry for more of Jesus, Jesus will do amazing things in our midst. And so we just, really that song kind of became an anthem of our nightly routine where we were just reminded constantly, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. My prayer for you is that you would remain hungry for Jesus, that you would say, as the Greeks said, we wish to see Jesus. We want more of Jesus. Don't be satisfied. I love Leonard Ravenhill, who's written on revival. He says, as long as we're content to live without revival, we will. And what I think about that is, don't be content. Don't be so easily satisfied. Want more, desire more of Jesus than you currently have. John Piper says, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. So make room, church. Make space. Keep desiring to see Jesus. Our heartbeat has been to be saturated with the good news of Jesus. We want more of Jesus. Keep seeking him. Keep hungering after him. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Pursuit of God, he has a chapter, it's, it's called Following Hard After God, and he says this, how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, and we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of spurious logic, which insists that if we have found him, we need no more to seek him. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. John Piper, quoting Matthew Henry, he says, Wherever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace. When Paul said, don't be drunk with wine and be filled with the Spirit, his aim was to make God a holix out of all believers. The Spirit is not deadening. He is addicting. The evidence that you have him is you want more of him. I hope, I pray, I will continue to pray that you will hunger for more of Jesus in the days to come. The second thing that I would ask is that you would rest hopeful that Jesus is working. That you would rest hopeful 
that Jesus is working. It may seem as if these, these Greeks coming to seek Jesus, that that was the, the, the sounding of the alarm. I, I love this quote. Uh, it said, this is the point that the alarm on heaven's clock has sounded. The single most important hour in history has come. The turning point, the climactic moment, the hour to which every preceding hour looked forward and from which every subsequent hour issues forth has come. And so it's like there is this moment and this seeking of Jesus was in some ways the unlocking of that moment. But this day has been ordained since all of history, since the beginning of time. This day, this hour, this moment, it's heaven's alarm has sounded. And I I love that because Sam Storm says this about this moment. At no time was the sovereignty of God more clearly seen than when Jesus was crucified, when he came upon that hour. And so we look at this and we, and we see this moment. All of the, all of the Bible, we look how, how specific the times, the, the ordering of, of days, the periods, the acceptable years, these, these days of the Lord, they've all been a part of an eternal plan. So rest hopeful that there's an eternal plan. Rest hopeful that God is working. Rest hopeful that the Son of Man is going to be glorified in our midst. This should give us great hope that nothing can thwart God's plans and purposes. Over and over and over again, we we hear in this, up until this point, the hour has always been future, right? The hour... The, the appointed time for Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation, future. Now we see very clearly that now is the time. When his mother came to him, to Jesus at the wedding at Cana, and informed him they had ran out of wine, he replied, the hour had not yet come. When his brothers were not yet believing, advised him to go to the Feast of the Tabernacles, John chapter 7, and make himself known, he said, the time has not yet come. Later at the feast, when the hostile Jews tried to seize him, they were unable to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. When Jesus taught openly in the temple, and again, his enemies could not seize him, his hour had not yet come. But here... The hours come. He's in control. He's ordaining the events of our life. Rest hopeful. Rest hopeful. He's in control. When we do that, when we believe that, when we know the character and the sovereignty of God, that he's over the events of our life, that he is orchestrating the events of our life, we will attempt great things for God. J.D. Greer says this, the church is willing to attempt great things for God because they believe great things of God. What is too hard for God? Nothing. When we planted Church of the Valley, we didn't plant Church of the Valley because I believed great things about myself. In fact, the more I thought about myself, the more I feared planting. I knew, 
out of the gates that we would fail. But I rested hopeful in the fact that Jesus is working, that he is here, that he is in our midst. Rest hopeful that Jesus is at work. Third, resist holding onto life and lose it in service to Jesus. I'm praying this. I'm praying that we remain hungry. I'm praying that we rest in, in hope. And I pray that we will resist holding onto our life and that we will lose it in service to Jesus. What we see in this, the analogy that, that Jesus uses, he says in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit. And this is the great paradox. We think that exaltation actually means progression, that things are moving forward. And so in many ways, when the Greeks come and they ask, we want to see Jesus, he said, for you to truly see me in all my glory, it means that I must die. And that if I die, if I give of my life, if I make the ultimate sacrifice, it's going to bear more fruit. He moves on in verse 25 and he explains this. Whoever loses his, loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he's going to go on and he's going to speak about death. Christians, Church of the Valley, hear me. I, I don't enjoy dying to self any more than you do. I don't enjoy dying to dreams, ambitions, goals for God's purposes or God's glory more than you do. It's hard. It's difficult. But it's worth it. Being a Christian means dying. Galatians chapter 5 verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As a pastor, I've had to deal with the death to, of expectations, the death of dreams, the death to my timeline. And as much as I as one pastor said, as much as I'd prefer the Christian life to be easy and perpetually life-giving, I often feel more like a grain of wheat who knows he needs to die, but doesn't love the experience of getting poked deep into the soil and buried alive. But Jesus calls us and involves us in humiliation. It involves honestly owning our limits and weaknesses. And when we do, he tells us those who continually lose their version of the supposed good life find the true, greater, and good life. I'm praying this for us. I'm praying that we will resist holding on to our life and lose it in service to Jesus. Maybe a question for you to think is, what in me must die that I can become a more fruitful, faithful follower of Jesus? What in me must die? What in me must I lose to be a more faithful father, wife, husband? What in me must die? What in our church must die so that our church may be become more 
fruitful. This is what Jesus is referencing in this passage. Matthew's gospel shares an expanded version of this, explaining that loving our lives means hanging on to our own selfish, stubborn ways. He says, if any one of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Sam, Sam Storms uh, describes this, uh, this phrase of, of dying to self in this way. He says, if you're still struggling to understand what it means to hate your life in this world, to lose your life for the sake of life in the next, He said, consider what we see in John chapter 12, one through eight. He said, I can't prove it, but I highly suspect that when Jesus spoke these words in verse 25 and 26, he had in mind Mary at the dinner party. He said, without the slightest regard for what others may think of her or say about her, she poured out her affection and worship for Jesus. She didn't take into consideration the financial cost of her devotion. She was oblivious to the criticism of others or how she might appear. She refused to think about how her action might affect her reputation or social standing. Her selfless devotion and service are a model to us of what it means to follow Jesus. There is a real sense in which what Mary did constituted the hating of her life in this world. She treated her reputation and her standing among the disciples and her financial security as utterly unimportant when compared with the loving and following with loving and following Jesus. And she did it because she wanted what is ultimately and eternally best for her in the life and age to come. I hope and pray that that is our desire as well that we will resist holding on to life and lose it in service to Jesus. And lastly, that we would receive honor from the Father. I'm praying that you will receive honor from the Father. I cannot imagine a greater gift than verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What does this mean? What does it mean to be honored by the Father? What does it mean to receive honor from this from, from the Father. And I, th- I would say every single one of us in this room, myself included, we desire, we long to be delighted in. We long to be honored. We, we, we long to, to, to experience this joyful present of someone saying, well done. We look for that in so many things. 
We look for that in our careers. We look for that in our families. We look for that in platforms like this. We look at that in so many of our achievements in the world. We long to be delighted in. We long to be accepted. And Jesus says, if you're willing to lose your life, if you're willing to give it for my sake, it's my sake. If you're willing to follow me, the Father will honor you. This is the good news of the gospel that I've preached since day one. That God the Father, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that the honor, the praise, the adoration, the acceptance that Jesus has, he freely gives to you. He freely gives to you. And if you'll follow him, the Father will honor you. He will delight in you. I pray that you will fall into his delight, to his praise, to his honoring. As Paul does to many of the, the churches uh, that he has started and planted and that he loves dearly, he starts most of the letters by earnestly praying for them. I commit to pray for you. I commit to honor you. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you always in my prayers. Church of the Valley, I love you. It has been a joy to lead you. It has been an honor to serve you. And I praise God for you. May God bless you. May God honor you. And may God allow you to experience more and more fruitfulness in the years to come. I'm gonna pray for us and I'll invite the worship team back up this morning. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for what you're doing, how you're working, how you're moving in this church. Lord, this is, it's yours. These are, this is your flock and you've entrusted it to us. And we thank you. We give you praise. Lord, I pray for a hunger Lord, that we would continually seek more and more of Jesus. Lord, I pray for hope to reside in this body, that we can remember and know that you are more than able to accomplish the purposes that you've set forth. Lord, I pray that we will lose our life for the sake of glorifying you and for the sake of seeing more people enter into the kingdom of God. And Lord, would we know that we're loved, that we're cared for, that you delight in us, that you're singing over us today. We give you praise. Lord, I bless this church. I commend them to you. May they know we have everything we need for life and godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.